So there, there are a couple things in the Salem episode that I didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, I, ran, I ran across them when I was watching a tour of the witch house on YouTube. And they were panning over the displays in the house and, you know, stopping to give you a chance to read over the, the little descriptions of everything. Yeah. And one of the displays was a witch bottle. Are you familiar with those? Like a um, spell jar type thing yeah yeah it's kind of like that yeah so we, we could probably do a an entire segment on the full history uh, of these witch bottles but basically a witch bottle is a small glass or stoneware bottle that contain among other things hair nail clippings and urine so recycling yes <laughs> they're recycling their urine <laughs> of the occupant of the house or someone believed to be a victim of witchcraft yeah Along with all of those nice ingredients, they have pins and nails in there. Wait, wait, wait. So these are to protect those who believe they're victims of witchcraft? Yeah, or just... So they're doing witchcraft to protect themselves from witchcraft? (laughs) Yes, exactly. You got it. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that ironic? Yeah. Yeah, so they they take the bottles and they, they either bury them on the far edge of the property or more commonly... I believe, is under the hearth of the fireplace or even in the walls of the home. But the belief is that these clippings and bodily fluids will attract evil spirits and then the pins and nails will trap them in the jar. Huh. Yeah. So so I thought that was bizarre, especially the urine. Yeah, that, that just sounds like marking your territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. From what I read... Only about a dozen bottles were ever found in the United States. Could you imagine, like, buying a home and you're, like, renovating it and you just find a bottle of, like, <laughs> someone's urine in here? <laughs> then they test it to see if there was actually urine. If the bottle isn't broken, they test it to see if there was actually urine in it. Ugh. So I'm, I'm really sure what, you know, other than witches, what it was really, how it really related to the witch trials. Yeah. Because, again, they didn't, they haven't found that many in the States. It's more commonly found in in the UK area. Yeah. Other items that have been found, speaking of uh, finding things in renovation, other things that have been found hidden in homes, in, in walls, floorboards, under, again, under the, under the hearth of the fireplace, which seems to be common, are dolls clothing and bones bones of yeah. what yeah that's what i wonder too i didn't do any digging to see if they're human bones but the, the reason they put them they hide these things are they believe that again i guess practicing witchcraft the the spirit of the person who had these items their spirit will protect the people in the house from evil yeah the funny thing is one of the most common things is finding shoes or i should say shoe because <laughs> they normally would only find one and the belief was that if the spirit only had one shoe, they wouldn't walk off. Oh my God. <laughs> Wait, so is this like just a common thing in general or like as protection from witches? Because again, I this think, all sounds like 
witchy stuff that they're doing. Well, yeah, it, all, it is all witch, witchcraft in some sense, right? Yeah. But it's also superstition. So I, yeah. I mean, I can laugh about it. It seems funny, but I imagine a hundred years from now, people are going to be laughing about the things that we, <laughs> you know, the superstitions that we have, right? Yeah. I and mean, we'll get into different superstitions, but. If it makes them feel safer. Yeah. So, I mean, just odd, but, but yes, it does sound like witchcraft to me. Yeah. One other thing that was actually related to the trials was witch cakes. It was reported on February 25th of 1692. A member of the congregation instructed Tichuba and her husband to bake a, a witch cake in an effort to identify the witch afflicting Paris's daughter and niece. Yeah. The girl's urine was mixed with flour <laughs> and fed to a dog. Oh. So maybe that's where the possessed dogs came in to play. Yeah. The witch dogs that you were talking about. Yeah. The idea was that the essence of the witch was in the girl's water and the witch would feel pain from the dogs chewing on the cake. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. And where do they come up with this, right? That just sounds more like animal cruelty to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Feeding your dogs. Urine cake. Urine, <laughs> urine cake. Yeah. But anyway, I just thought those were interesting. I didn't get a chance to mention them, but... So, on to the show. What are you talking about tonight? I'm going to be talking about unsolved disappearances to give a little bit of a break of the gruesome murders I usually talk about. So, the disappearances are going to be of the Bennington Triangle in Vermont. I have never heard about that. Not the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> okay. It's the same concept, though, right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Bennington Triangle is a loosely defined area that encompasses the ghost town of Glastonbury, once a small logging company in southwestern Vermont. Abandoned at the end of the 19th century after the logging boom died down, the greater Glastonbury area is now mostly an untouched, pristine wilderness and is considered remote even by Vermont standards. A five-year span of disappearances began in 1945 within the Bennington Triangle. A 74-year-old local hunting guide, Mitty Rivers, was the first to disappear. Rivers led a party of four hunters around the area of Hell Hollow in the southwest woods of Glastonbury before he was suddenly lost. After the initial search was unsuccessful... Wait, I'm sorry. So he was lost during the, the trip with the four people? I think it was after um, he led the hunters to where they were going to hunt. I think it was like when he was heading back or something. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. That's the way I took it. All right. After the initial search was unsuccessful, many believed that him being a knowledgeable woodsman would help him survive long enough to surface back in town, but that was not the case. Over 300 concerned locals and U.S. Army soldiers that were dispatched from Massachusetts, Fort Devins, had combed through the wilderness for eight days. There was not even the slightest bit of evidence as to where Rivers was or where he could have gone. The following year, there was arguably the most infamous missing persons case in the history of Vermont. This was the disappearance of 18-year-old Paula Weldon. She was a student at Bennington College that decided to hike a leg of the long trail during Thanksgiving break while most of her peers had returned home for the holiday. She was last seen on Sunday, December 1st, 1946 wearing red, which is easy to spot, and entering the long trail near Glastonbury Mountain. She never showed up to her Monday classes, causing a massive search party of more than a thousand people and a reward of $5,000. 
Despite the turnout, numerous aircraft utilized, and a variety of assisting law enforcement departments, there were no clues discovered. There was a lot of criticism, especially from Weldon's father, that the authorities lacked sophisticated methods in handling the case, which actually served as the encouragement for the founding of the Vermont State Police seven months later. The case is still open. Really? Huh? Yeah. Exactly three years to the day after the vanishing of Paula Weldon, the Bennington Triangle saw one of the more supernatural disappearances. 68-year-old man named James E. Tedford boarded a bus to Bennington after visiting relatives in St. Albans, Vermont. Many eyewitnesses, including the driver, later confirmed that Tedford had been in his seat as late as the last stop before Bennington. When the bus finally pulled into Bennington, Tedford was nowhere to be found. After he vanished into thin air while inside a moving vehicle, passengers noted that Tedford's luggage and an open bus timetable remained on his seat. If witnesses are correct, Tedford would have disappeared from his seat as the bus was traveling down Route 7 through the Bennington Triangle. This is why I don't go to the bathroom when I'm on a bus. <laughs> I don't want to fall through and... <laughs> <laughs> fall through what? <laughs> Where does that stuff go? <laughs> I don't think. It's not like just a hole there. <laughs> well, that's one reason why I don't go in the in the bathroom on a bus. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Just don't go to the bathroom in public. <laughs> in mid-October 1950, nearly a year later, eight-year-old Paul Jepson was missing. He was last seen happily playing in the family pickup truck by his mother who left to tend to pigs at the dump where she and her husband were caretakers. Then he vanished without a trace. In addition to the hundreds assembled for a search party, a New Hampshire sheriff brought a bloodhound to sniff out the missing boy. The dog had a scent until the trail was abruptly lost at a nearby crossroad, suggesting a possible abduction by a motorist. As there was no re- resolution in the case, some suggested that Jepson had died at the hands of his parents and was dinner for the pigs. <laughs> yep. Oh. Uh, to keep... With the eerie feeling of the Bennington Triangle, the boy's father told the Albany Times Union that it was the lure of the mountains that pulled his missing son, as he had talked of nothing else for days prior to the disappearance. That's odd. Yeah. I just think it it makes it more suspicious that... Yeah, he's coming up with this weird story. Yeah. So I wasn't wasn't too sure about the, the parents and the pig, but now I'm starting to wonder. Yeah, like the mountains calling to him and this... Eight-year-old is saying that. Yeah. I don't know. About two weeks later, 53-year-old Frida Langer, an experienced hiker and survivalist familiar with the area, went missing on the Somerset area of the Long Trail boarding East Glastonbury. After hiking a brief half-mile with her cousin Herbert Eisner, Langer fell into a stream and went back to their camp to change her clothes, where her husband was resting with a hurt knee. Neither her husband nor her cousin ever saw her again. Helicopters from the Connecticut Coast Guard and U.S. Army in Massachusetts, as well as local aircraft from Citizens and the Vermont Aeronautics Commission, helped search for Langer. Around 400 people, including the Massachusetts National Guard, meticulously searched the surrounding areas. Soon, they found something, which made it the only known disappearance of the Bennington Triangle where a body has turned up. Six months after she went missing, Langer's body was found near the Somerset Reservoir. It was an open area that had been searched extensively numerous times in the previous months. The body had decayed so much that no cause of death could be determined, only causing more speculation about what could have happened. So she wouldn't be included in the triangle though, right? Because she was found? 
I think it's uh, just the mystery. Like she was experienced. Yeah, where did and, she go for all that time? And, yeah. And then showed up, yeah. And it being an area that they searched over and over and then just appearing. Yeah. What's what's weird about this is you're talking about this, you know, I'm thinking about why are these why are these considered just disappearances and not like some type of serious some type of serial killer, but there's so many differences in, you know, who is who disappeared and the circumstances in which they disappeared. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be a pattern. Yeah, I, I do get a little bit into that. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, with the intriguing mysteries and unexplained events associated with the Bennington Triangle have caused many to speculate the possibility of paranormal forces at work, probably because of the alleged UFO and Bigfoot sightings in the area. Okay, so it's you said you were going to get into a serial killer angle, or is it the UFO paranormal? No, I was going to get into the... Okay. The, well. I just didn't know if you had a reaction to... Well, yeah, so I would... Bigfoot is the serial killer. <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, now, now I'm upset because I never thought of Bigfoot that way. I didn't think he was capable. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> At least that, as far as I know, Bigfoot. Yeah, he's a he's a good he's a good one. Yeah. Uh, UFOs. Yeah. Mm, that area. Matter of fact, my story related to you know in the same basic area. So. Yeah. I don't. It's just. But with UFOs, like you said, none of them are like really common to the point. Like, I don't think they would leave a body behind. Yeah, you don't hear that a lot where, well, I guess if somebody disappeared and they never come back, you don't know. They could be, they could be uh, alien abductions, right? Yeah. But those are never usually the story. It's somebody was, as, as in, you know, what I'll get into is abducted and examined and then released. Yeah. But... It does pose an interesting question because we wouldn't know, you know, if they were disappearing by these UFOs, we wouldn't know. So we wouldn't be talking about it, right? That's true. And it's like, where did they go? Were they? Yeah, that's true. Others believe that the burst of missing persons between 1945 and 1950 was the work of a serial killer. But there was lack of evidence and the variety of victims' ages and gender ruled out the theory. Another thought was that their deaths were at the claws of an indigenous mountain cat, such as a lynx, bobcat, or catamount. Bobcat and lynx are not known to be an aggressive animal towards humans, and the catamount had been declared extinct since it had been sighted, hadn't been sighted since before 1940. So they're they're saying that it could have been they could have been attacked, but they never found the bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like well. And not only that, they're they're suggesting that it might have been an extinct cat. Well, they're they're saying that they're like a lot of people assumed or uh, theorized that they were these animals, but because the cat that had been declared extinct, uh, that wasn't possible. Unless oh, that cat can eat this entire person. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I I did first of all. I didn't know that. I thought bobcats were aggressive. Apparently they're not. Yeah, I would thought any cat would be aggressive. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't want to tempt that. Yeah, no, I would. So going back, the the Bigfoot thing is bothering me. I mean, what the hell would Bigfoot want to be doing, killing people? First of all, <laughs> and then what would he be doing with the bodies? <laughs> In his little lair. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just uh, that's that's a bizarre. I'm more apt to believe that the UFO 
you know, UFOs came along and abducted these people than to think poor Bigfoot is getting <laughs> blamed for this. I feel like that's why it's so rare to see Bigfoot because Bigfoot is just like portrayed as this evil, scary, big guy, big hairy well, that's thing. How we, that's how some people portray him. But when you see the the footage of the uh, Bigfoot, he's just running in the background behind the film, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just enjoying his life. Yeah. I always think of... He's just like, I'm sorry, he, he's just like kind of getting out, getting out of the frame. Oops. Oh, man, they're taking a picture. I'm, I'm photobombing them. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it looks like. <laughs> and I always think of the one commercial where Bigfoot is just like doing normal tasks. And I don't know what the name he goes by in the commercial. He's like, no one ever calls him by oh, his name. Oh, progressive. Yeah. Then, <laughs> she, she calls him Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah. He's just like all sad because like no one knows him as his real name. This is not a commercial for progressive insurance. No. <laughs> uh, but I always think about that. Like him just yeah, doing daily tasks, <laughs> cracking open a beer, just <laughs> at a campground. Wait, Bigfoot drinks? <laughs> I mean, he... He has Next, every... you're going to tell me he smokes weed. <laughs> oh, wait. There, I'm showing my age again. <laughs> Calling it weed. <laughs> what else are you supposed to call it? Pot. Uh, Pot. Smokes doobies. I've heard tree before. What the heck is a tree? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who's smoking trees? <laughs> Apparently the Bigfoot. Yeah. He's got plenty of them around him. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Anyway, we're just going all over the place here. So, where are we at? Well, I was, first of all, I was going to say he has every right to drink for people fearing him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hey, I can imagine that's pretty depressing. Yeah. Nobody just, loves me. <laughs> just so alone. Yeah, poor guy. We're talking, we're talking like he's one Bigfoot. There's more? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the heat, unless he just travels because he's sighted all over the world. <laughs> Maybe he just moves around. But. He's like, he like travels all over the world and he's like, damn it, another, <laughs> I'm photobombing another photo. Yeah. And <laughs> Why if, does this always happen? If he was the only one, that would be another reason to drink, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I always, I was going to say, I wonder if there's like a, a female Bigfoot. Maybe. You, you would hope. Otherwise, yeah, I would see where the drinking would come in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all alone. No. Nobody loves me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> totally off topic. Poor Bigfoot. Let's move on. Oh, my gosh. I hope Bigfoot listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want him to show up at our house. Why not? He's such a good guy. <laughs> he might guy. be mad. No, we're, we're saying that he's a good guy. We're calling him an alcoholic weed smoker. <laughs> <laughs> Then I'll just be like, I'll join you. We'll be mad at the world together. <laughs> Come on in, Bigfoot. Watch your head. <laughs> Let's smoke some pot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I feel so, like we sound like we smoke pot already. <laughs> I guess now we have to have some on hand in case he does show up. So I'll, I'll go down and pick up a uh, case of beer and a, a dime a pot. B-Y-O-P, bring, bring your own, own pot. B-Y-O-P. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that stood for bring your own potty. Potty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back on topic. Oh my gosh, I'm sweating. 
Um, the only known similarities between the most well-documented cases are the close proximity of the disappearances. The time of day when most were last seen, which was between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m., and the time of year when most were last seen, which was the last three months of the year. With the little evidence, paranormal theories have taken hold. There have been more recent odd occurrences in the Bennington Triangle area, including terrifying voices allegedly showing up on dead air radio, sightings of mysterious figures, Bigfoot, <laughs> unexplained navigation mishaps, and planes that mysteriously crashed. To this day, Bennington Triangle attracts those who have fondness of the eerie. That's weird. I guess a serial killer, you know, just somebody who's just randomly picking whoever yeah. to kill. I mean, normally you hear about, or at least myself, you know, I hear about they have a type, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they, and they have this pattern of the type of people they're looking, looking to kill. You know, my question is, if it were a serial killer, I know psychologically most of them are very proud of their work and don't like others taking credit even though they will not come forward how pissed would they be that bigfoot is getting credit for these <laughs> yeah um or a ufo but yeah i don't know i i feel like serial killer is like the most logical answer if you want like a response but it just doesn't make sense because there's not like a set yeah, I'll have to wrap my head around the whole alien abduction thing because I never really thought about that before. But, it, you know, I'm, when I'm thinking about it, it's like, okay, yeah, like I said before, if they were abducting people and they just disappeared, you just, you know, their disappearances, nobody's putting the two to two, two and two together. Yeah. You know, compared to you hear all the, you know, stories about people who were abducted and they're, you know, and then they came back and. Yeah. Except in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where all of the people who had disappeared came back on the spaceship. Oh, like all at once? Well, you know, well, so the movie would, you know, implied that like in the Bermuda Triangle, there was a, a squadron that disappeared. Mm -hmm. Then in the movie, those planes were found out in the middle of the desert or whatever. And then at the end of the movie, uh, a bunch of people who had disappeared over the years were brought back on the ship. Yeah. So, anyway. Huh, that's interesting. I'd be very, I'm very skeptical that I'm the type of person that would be like, yeah, let's go to the Bennington Triangle. Let's go to the Bermuda Triangle. I want to see what happens. I would be full for it. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. As long as I'm not by myself. Yeah. Because that seems to be the pattern, right? Yeah. But then, I don't know if you remember what show was it. I think it was like the, the Sweet Life of Zach and Cody uh -huh. on deck. When they were like on the cruise ship. Yeah. They went through the triangle. But like every time they went. I think it was that show. Every time they went through like the day repeated. So they had to like try oh, right. to move the <laughs> ship around it. I would hate that. Like if I was aware that the day was repeating over and over and over. <laughs> I would hate that. <laughs> you know we can't not mention mom's trip through the Bermuda Triangle. Because. <laughs> yeah. I. I, I feel like it was one of those things that were like, oh, yeah, we went through the Bermuda Triangle, but they didn't. No, they did. Well, she claims that the, the ship flew through the Bermuda Triangle. Flew? Yeah. Like it... it well, she was dreaming. She had a dream when she was on the ship, and they were going through the Bermuda Triangle. They were on a cruise, and she had a dream that the ship was flying through the Bermuda Triangle. 
But like, I hope I got that right because if I got the story <laughs> wrong, she'll kill me when she hears this episode. I just have to <laughs> cut it out. When I think flu, I mean like I think it flying like like a plane flying over magically like yeah well that's oh. what dreams are about right i guess <laughs> we're we're, <laughs> we're apparently off topic again i swear to god we are not smoking we are not drunk we were saying that so stiffly like <laughs> reading it off of a... <laughs> i swear to god that we have not been drinking or smoking pot yes where where were we well okay uh we were talking about mysteries and you said you had a ufo mystery not mystery but story oh, wait, you, are you done with your yes i am done oh okay i didn't know if there was any other theories no i guess like i guess the serial killer angle is the most likely right yeah that uh, i i would say that yeah but considering the area yeah i mean the alien abduction thing is interesting no i i think the serial killer makes the most sense maybe it's just like because it's so disorganized that they don't have a signature, maybe they were just starting off. Yeah, or they're just, you know, taking advantage of the environment. That's true. Right? They just and don't care. Not very, you know, sparsely populated area. And just as they run across people that are by themselves. You know. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of sparsely populated areas, I am going to be talking about the Barney and Betty Hill abduction which took place in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, so not too far from the Bennington Triangle. That's interesting. Maybe the triangle is larger than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty close to the general timeline, too. So this all started approximately 10.30 p.m. on September 19, 1961, as Barney and Betty were driving on U.S. Route 3, heading home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, after they were vacationing in Niagara Falls in Montreal. Betty claimed that she began to see a bright light moving by the moon. By the moon? Like up in the yeah. sky? Well, she, she, yeah, up in the sky under the moon. Hmm. And then she started to see it hovering over to the west side of the moon. At first she had thought it was a falling star, but then she realized the movement it was doing, it, it must be something else. Yeah. As it became larger, Betty and Barney pulled over so they could get a closer look at it. I feel like I wouldn't pull over for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they pulled over near a deserted picnic area just south of Twin Mountain, which is a small community in the White Mountains of, of New Hampshire, as I was saying. They took their dog for a walk. They had their dog with them. Mm. They took the dog for a walk. Delcy, if you're curious what the dog's name was. What was it? Delcy. Delcy? Yeah. Hmm. Apparently, they had some binoculars on them, pulled them out. Barney first thought it was an airplane. But again, the light was getting larger and it was moving towards the ground. He began to have his doubts about whether it was a plane or not. Interesting side note, Betty's sister had seen a UFO in 1957. And this had led Betty to believe at this point that they were seeing a UFO. Hmm. That's interesting that two of them. Yeah, I, I, th I thought it was kind of odd, right? Yeah. Because, and so I looked this up and there was a, I read an article about a 1966 Gallup poll where only 5% of people surveyed said they had seen a UFO. Hmm. So what are the odds that two sisters yeah. would have an experience totally separately four years apart with a UFO? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that, that does lead a little, leave a little suspicion to it. Yeah. So they get back in their car and they continue through the mountain pass. 
They stated that they drove slowly as they continued to watch the object. Yeah. So they're driving along watching this object. At one point, the object descended down to their vehicle and Barney stopped. They claimed that the spacecraft hovered over about 100 feet above the car and covered their, their entire view as they looked out through the windshield. Oh, wow. So kind of big. Yeah. Barney, for whatever idiotic reason, got out of the car. <laughs> oh, no. And he described it as looking like a massive pancake. So just, you know, it's a saucer-shaped, round, but flat. Yeah. You know, f- relative to its size. Yeah. Just looking like a giant pancake. And he also said that there was windows around the edge and he saw about eight to, ten, eight to 11 humanoid beings watching him. So we all know that UFOs, they have windows, right? When they go out <laughs> into space. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they need to look at the pretty, pretty view. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess. Who, who am I to say what a UFO looks like? I would have pressed the gas so quickly. I know. I, I was <laughs> like, what? Wait, you're stopping and then you're getting out of the car? Yeah, I would have booked it. <laughs> As he was standing out there, what he described as the lead figure, I never could figure out how they knew, you know, maybe it's the one that talked to him or whatever, how they knew who the lead figure was. But they communicated or he communicated to him that he should stay still. So now at this point, they're there and they're, they're telling them, don't move. But Barney panicked. He ran back to the car and they sped off. <laughs> now they speed <laughs> yeah. off. Now they speed off. While Barney's driving, Betty's keeping an eye on the craft that's keeping pace with their car. Yeah. Then they started to hear a rhythmic series of beeping and buzzing that they said originated from the trunk of the car, and the car started to vibrate. A tingling sensation passed through their bodies, and at that point, they claimed to have experienced an altered state of consciousness, and their senses began to dull. Oh, I would have called that anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They said that they traveled about 35 miles but we're unsure how they had gotten there. Of course, that's where I, me driving all the time. Yeah. I get somewhere and like, how did I get here? Yeah, I'm always <laughs> like, wait, I forgot I was driving. <laughs> they arrived home around dawn, their drive taking about three hours longer than they expected. They apparently had some lost time there. Yeah. Some things they noted upon arriving home, uh, the strap of the binoculars was broken. They didn't know how that happened. The toes of what Barney described as his best shoes were scraped. Hmm. Betty's dress was torn in several places and there was a pink powder on it, but that blew away when she, well, she, you know, it was torn and there was this pink powder and I guess she tried to salvage it because, you know, she talks about hanging it on the clothesline yeah. and that's when the powder, you know, blew away. Yeah. But I never really understood why she was hanging it up if the dress was torn. At this point, they, they don't even think about the fact that they might've been abducted, abducted. So uh-huh. they, it's not like, oh, I have this, this evidence, I should preserve it. They, they, don't, just don't, they just don't know what's going on. I'm surprised they didn't think about it. They literally had something hovering over them. Well, I, I think, well, the, the, the belief is that they had forgotten all, a lot of that. Oh, okay. By the time they got home. So a side note on the clothes, they, they were tested a number of times over the years, but nothing was ever found. Uh, their watches did not work and never functioned again. I didn't read anything about whether they had them looked at to determine why they were working. Yeah. They said they felt dirty and took long showers to get clean. And they also found small concentric circles on the trunk of their car. What about the dog? Uh, unfortunately, I didn't read any more about the dog other than he was on the trip with them. I don't know. Maybe 
Maybe they forgot they had a dog and they actually, he was abducted by the aliens. No, not <laughs> me worrying more about animals. <laughs> I'm sure he was fine. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> On September 21st, Betty contacted the Air National Guard base in New Hampshire to report the incident. Major Paul W. Henderson interviewed them and in a report dated September 26th, he concluded that they had most likely misidentified Jupiter. But the report was said to have been forwarded to Project Blue Book. Are you familiar with Project Blue Book? No. <laughs> it was really big when I was younger because they had a show. They have a show now, I believe, on it. But um... Anyway, Project Blue Book was a study started in 1952 by the U.S. Air Force. Its goal was to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Hmm. It ran until 69 or 70. They had investigated over 12,000 cases and classified 90% of them as identifiable causes. The remaining 10%, about 700 cases, were classified as unidentifiable. They couldn't determine what had happened. Betty then contacted NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, who she learned about after looking for books on UFOs at the library. And on October 21st, Barney and Betty were interviewed for six hours by one of their members, a Walter N. Webb. It was during this time that Barney, during the interviews with Webb, that Barney expressed to him that he felt he was having uh, some type of mental block and speculated that they may not be remembering everything that happened about the incident. Yeah. So this was, you know, they felt something happened. They kind of remember bits and pieces, but they just didn't have it all there. And, and it was at this time he was like, oh, you know, maybe we're missing something here. Yeah. So Betty and Barney expressed a desire to undergo hypnosis, but they did not immediately pursue that option. Yeah. They just didn't know somebody who could do that. Well, that's understandable. I feel like that's like not as reliable either. Well, I don't think it was that. I think they just didn't know who who to contact at that point. Oh, well, that about makes sense. It, right? yeah. Ten days after the abduction, Betty started to have dreams that she said lasted for five nights. Hmm. In the dream, she recalled their car being surrounded by alien beings, four to five feet tall, gray-skinned, and wearing blue uniforms. <laughs> so they, they have uniforms. <laughs> I guess it makes sense. Yeah, but I don't know why always. <laughs> I never pictured them like having outfits. Well, I, I guess that's... They don't go naked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just figured it was like not naked to them. It was just normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like they're always like, you know, made out to be naked, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, I guess that's what you see. You never really see them with uniforms on or not that often. But she described large eyes, large dark eyes, bluish lips, prominent noses. Wait, they and- have noses? <laughs> Sorry. What? They have noses? <laughs> yeah, what do you think? But like human noses? Well, no, they're alien noses. <laughs> These are, you know, people, how they describe them, right? They. I don't know why I never thought of noses. Well, wait until you hear this. They okay. had dark hair too. <laughs> <laughs> that was my reaction. I didn't know aliens had hair. <laughs> like, they have like mullets but that's better or something. Than not knowing they had noses. Well, I thought they were just like little holes, like nostrils, like reptiles. Apparently, these ones had noses. (laughs) These were the, there's different types of aliens that are described. So, these were the gray aliens. She described how she struggled to maintain consciousness and how her and Barney were led into the forest. This is still in their dreams. Yeah. 
The two of them were led up a ramp into the craft where they were separated. Can't recall her explanation about how the aliens communicated, but they told her that they were going to examine them to determine the differences between their two species. Hmm. They took hair clippings, trimmings of fingernails, and scraped off skin cells. Hmm. She said they inserted a needle into her navel to test her nervous system, which caused her a lot of pain, but it went away when one of the aliens waved his hand. So he was, like, taking the pain away from her, magically. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's odd about the tests, you know, because you think about, alien, you know, you think advanced technology, they're flying all over the you know universe, whatever. Yeah. And you think they would have these scanners and stuff to examine us, even without even knowing we've been abducted. Or they could just like... Or even without abducting us. You know. Ask scientists nicely. <laughs> What's that? Or they could just ask scientists oh, yeah. nicely. <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you give us your research? I just think it's interesting that... They're like testing us. And when I feel like if we had aliens, like saw aliens, we would test them. But I don't think we would be as nice. That's true. It is nice that they take the pain away and yeah. put them back where at they least, found them. At least in this um in this instance. Uh so in 1963, so this is a couple years, I'm not sure exactly the months or whatever, but Barney was referred to Benjamin Simon who was a hypnotist in Boston. Hmm. Betty and Barney's hypnosis sessions began on January 4th, 1964. It, it was interesting that, you know, they, they had this objection story and you, you immediately think about, you know, public, publicity and, yeah. you know, they're, they're telling this story. But this was a really slow process of them going through from the abduction to all of this coming out. Yeah. Simon indicated that he conducted their sessions separately and induced amnesia to make them forget what they discussed during hypnosis. So he's no better than the aliens. <laughs> so I was thinking, is he part of them? Is yeah. he one of them? <laughs> he's, like, he's like making them forget what they went through. But I, I can see that, you know, he doesn't want to them to get their stories mixed up. So yeah. Or, you know, start to get their stories straight or whatever. So. Barney recalled during the sessions that the strap on the binoculars broke when he was running back to the car. And as he was driving away, he felt compelled to pull over. So there's why he pulled over. Hmm. He said he was then approached by six of the aliens who told him to remain calm and close his eyes, which he did. And apparently his recall of events were less detailed than Betty's because he kept his eyes closed most of the time. So he's like, I'm keeping my eyes closed. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I'm think, trying to think of if I would keep mine closed or not, because it sounds like a terrifying experience. Interesting that they told him to keep his eyes closed, but Betty didn't mention that about her, about her experience. Yeah. He indicated that he felt they were communicating through thought transference. Makes sense. This is, that's another interesting thing about, you know, how advanced they are, thought transference and all this, and yet they're doing these rudimentary exams. Maybe they feel it's the safest. Yeah. Or maybe they just can't afford to put the equipment on the spaceships, so they have to do <laughs> field exams. <laughs> if it's a giant spaceship. <laughs> well, I mean, just, you know, budget and everything. I wonder how much fuel they... What kind of fuel? <laughs> Are we going to talk about the mechanics of the aerodynamics of spaceships? No, continue your story. <laughs> Apparently, Barney's exam was a little more invasive than Betty's because he did get an anal probe. Oh. Yes. So I won't discuss 
his exam any further, but that was about the extent of it, but, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> Betty's session was said to be pretty consistent with her dreams, other than some of the details being a bit different and the timeline was a bit off. Hmm. But I guess that makes sense because, you know, you're comparing dreams to reality. Yeah. During the session, Betty drew a star map that she said had described from her. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I wrote here. During her session, Betty drew a star map that she said she had. (laughs) I have such a hard time with it. She had said she was shown (laughs) Sally sells seashells on the seashore. During her session, Betty drew a star map that she said she had described from her dreams and said she was shown. <laughs> Sorry. Stop. Sally said she sells seashores. <laughs> she said she was shown while on the ship. <laughs> oh, tongue twisters. What the hell? <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> the analysis of the map gets into a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm still on the. <laughs> Who's slap happy now? Yeah. Uh, anyway, I won't get into the map because uh, that's a whole other thing about whether it was valid or not. You know, people are analyzing it, trying to determine where the stars were. And- yeah. And there's a big discussion with scientists about, you know, some believed that it could be valid. Others were, no, it's too random. Hmm. Uh, Simon found that both Betty and Barney's stories were pretty consistent with one another. But his conclusion was that Barney's recollections were fantasies built off of his wife's dreams. He did believe that they believed, but he did not believe that they were abducted. That hmm. was his personal opinion, but he did believe that they believed their story. He he believed that the sessions were successful in relieving the abduction anxiety that the Hills were experiencing. Whether they were abducted or not, they were having this anxiety and he felt that that helped them. You know, real or, or not, right? Yeah. Uh, after the sessions, the Hills went back to their normal lives and it was said that they did not seek any further attention. So again... You know, if you, you want to doubt the story, you have to look at the timeline of everything and the fact that they weren't, or at least they were really good at hiding the fact that they weren't looking for publicity. Yeah. Right. But in October of 1965, the Boston Traveler ran a front page story about the abduction. The reporter had managed to get notes of confidential interviews the couple had given UFO investigators and found out about the hypnosis sessions. This was the point at which the story really took off. They, they claimed to have found the spot where they had been abducted. Apparently, they had been going back up there and looking for, you know, trying to, you know, see where, been, see where they were abducted. Yeah. They claimed to have found it somewhere, in, somewhere around 1965, but they never really could find any evidence of anything having occurred there. I mean, it's been a few years, hasn't it, since their abduction? Yeah. So yeah, sixty-five. So it was four four years since it uh, yeah. since it had happened. So after the the reporter and then Betty, that's at the point where Betty and Barney felt that they should get ahead of it rather than just trying to you know stay low key. Yeah. So they got involved with uh, John G. Fuller, who wrote the book The Interrupted Journey. So that was the the book that that told the the story and really launched it off. 
Uh, Barney died in 1969 of uh, cerebral hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. And Betty passed away in 2004 from cancer. That's sad. The, uh, I believe the Hill abduction was the first in the United States, but it wasn't you know, like the first abduction story. There was actually one in 1957, but this was down in Brazil, a 23-year-old farmer. I was going to talk about that a little, but I decided, yeah, just I just wanted to mention that the, the Hills weren't weren't the first story, yeah, but kind of the first story in the U.S. Hmm, it's interesting. Yeah, that was it. Wait, uh, so they were like the very first abduction story? As far as I know, yeah, I'm not aware of any other stories, at least that came forward, right? Yeah, not that they were not the first people abducted, but that's just interesting because it seems a lot later than I would have expected. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, considering when. Well, if you're gauging it by the, you know, like the UFO craze, which mm. was, what, early 50s, something like that, mm. or probably even late 40s, because the Roswell crash was in July of 47, and I believe the first widely reported UFO sighting was a month before that in Washington state. So I think 47 is considered the start of the modern UFO age. It's hmm. interesting. Yeah. That was it. I thought, yeah, I thought it was an interesting, interesting story. Like I said, the the fact that her sister had seen a UFO. You know, made, it's always, these stories always have these angles that make you wonder, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. Know? So that was that was a little suspicious. But again, with the timeline and they weren't really pushing it. I mean, it took from the time that they said the abduction happened. You know, it was over four years before they they made a book deal on it. Yeah, that. I feel like is something that they would push right away. Like, because that's a big story, like being abducted and stuff. Yeah, it's not like, not like Amityville Horror where they, they left the house and went to her mom's house or whatever and they were on the phone with a, <laughs> with somebody who, to write the book within, you know, a couple of days, it seemed. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's it. Just a, yeah, kind of a short story, but it, yeah, it was interesting, like we just said. So, I think that's all we have. Getting late. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.